But I want to start this morning by noticing something. A lot of you come to church every single week, and when you come together and we come together, you'll notice that part of what we do is we just sing songs together. And the question is, why do we do that? If you think about it, it's not the most efficient way to convey information or communication. It may be a lot more efficient at times just to say it. But sometimes we sing, now not often outside of church, but sometimes we even sing in our culture. Almost everybody here knows happy birthday, right? You'll be at a restaurant sometimes and servers will come out and they'll sing it. Some of you love having it sung to you. Some people get embarrassed about it. Some people threaten their family's life if you surprise them by having it sung. But it's a real simple, simple song. I don't even know who wrote the lyrics. It's over 100 years old. At one point, there was a company literally receiving royalties, millions of dollars, just for happy birthday to you. Sometimes we don't sing our songs uh, the way other countries sing songs. We have a particular song in our culture. It could be maybe one of the most popular songs. It's a song called Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You know this song? Anybody know this song? Okay. The ironic thing about that song is where people are when they sing the song. Take me out to the ball game. They're always at the ball game. <laughs> That's the only time we sing the song. It makes really no sense at all. It's kind of a silly song. And the reason I think we sing it in the seventh inning stretch is because by that time people have had enough beer and they don't really care what you're singing at that point. <laughs> Some people aren't willing to sing because, to be honest with you, they're not very musical. Ulysses S. Grant, one of our presidents, apparently he wasn't very uh, musical. He actually said uh, himself that he only knew two tunes. One of them was Yankee Doodle, and the other one wasn't. <laughs> apparently he wasn't one of the funnier presidents either. It's a weird thing. When it comes to music, it's part of every culture, every civilization, but it's always not the most efficient way, but it is certainly one of the deepest parts of being a human being. As long as there have been mothers and babies, there have been lullabies. As long as people have fallen in love, there have been love songs. As long as hearts have been filled with joy, people have been singing. Even in a real holy moment, if you've ever been around the deathbed of a loved one or a friend, very often that when the spoken word is no longer able to communicate much, people who love one another will just gather around and they'll just sing. Often they're songs of faith because singing has a way of speaking to the soul. There's an old expression associated with St. Augustine. It says, he who sings prays twice, once with your mind and once with your heart. People sing in moments, think about this, when they need courage, when they're in horrible circumstances. In the Bible, there are a couple of guys named Paul and Silas, and they've been arrested for their faith. They're in a very terrible spot. They're stripped, they're beaten with rods, they're severely flogged, they're put in stocks. And about midnight, it says they were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, who in the world does that? I mean, when we're happy, we're singing, but they're desperate, so they sing. Did you know that Jesus, among other things, was actually a singer? On the final night of his life, he knew that he was going to die. 
he had that last meal with his disciples. And then before he leaves to be executed, we're told this, with his disciples with him, they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Music says something that no words can simply say. It expresses the longings and intentions of our hearts. It helps us when we are fallen and struggling and discouraged. I bring this up because singing and music are always associated with Christmas. In fact, let's do this. Just turn to somebody beside you since we didn't get to greet one another and just say this to them. Tell them your favorite Christmas song, no matter what it is. Don't, don't get real spiritual now, okay? So if it's not, uh, you know, a real Christian hymn or something, that's okay. What's your favorite Christmas song this time of year to either hear or to sing? Just share it real quick. Okay, how many of you are honest and said, Grandma got run over by a reindeer? <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> of course Doug did. Of course. Um, my favorite Christmas song is a song called Oh Holy Night. We're going to actually hear it in just a moment. And if you think there's any coincidence between the fact that it's going to be sung and the fact that it's my favorite song, I want to assure you, you're absolutely right. Okay? <laughs> this connection we have with music goes all the way back to the very first Christmas. When Jesus was born, the custom in Israel at that time, because music expressed something that nothing else could, a custom they had that when a child was born, if it was safe, in other words, if the child lived, which in many parts of the world even today, it's not always the case, a certainty that the child will make it. But if he did, there would be music if the baby was born, if the baby and the mom were safe, and if the baby was the right gender. Anybody here want to guess what the right gender was in that day? Yeah, a little boy. They would gather musicians, friends, relatives, and there would be music. Listen, if it was a little girl, this is so sad to me, no music. The musicians would go home. Part of what Jesus came to do is to change the way our world would even look at little girls. Now Jesus... Because his folks were from Nazareth, they had traveled down from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They had no relatives or friends there. They had no musicians there. So God had to make other arrangements for there to be music when Christ was born. And he did this. Some of you know this story. There were shepherds. They were hanging out in a field and God says, uh, I'm going to send an angel to you. The baby has been born. You will find him in a manger in swaddling clothes. This is good news and this is great joy. And the communication has been kind of transmitted. The news has been given, but that's not the end of it. When the angel had given the news, it says at once the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. Hundreds of years after that, a Christmas song would be penned. It reminds us of this amazing moment when the angels declared the good news. Now here's a question. Why do the angels do that? Why break out an angelic song? I mean, the information has been given. A child has been born. They should go and they should visit. 
Why a song? Well, they do it, I think, for a very simple reason. The universe is not designed for efficiency. It is designed for wonder. Now, we know this in our heart. The universe catches us off guard sometimes, and we know that worship is the only sane response to the mystery of our existence. In other words, we look around and we realize we didn't make this happen. Something that we see or hear or experience is not the result of some human cleverness or technology. It is not an accident. It is a marvel. It is a wonder. And in moments of complete sanity, we realize this. Worship, among other things, restores us to sanity. In worship, I come to see how big my God really is. This is an important part of what some people have called spiritual hygiene. In worship, I think about and I dwell on and I delight in and I find ways to express the goodness and the greatness and the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the one who would create all this. If you look at human literature, including the Bible, you will see that it is rife with this thought. The psalmist wrote, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. And this is way more, friends, than church services. It's way more than just music. Very often we do it out of a need. In other words, I recognize I need strength, so I praise God for his power. And I recognize I need wisdom, so I praise God for his, uh, uh, his guidance and provision. I, I recognize I need forgiveness, so I praise God for his mercy. I feel alone, so I praise God for his love. Do you understand today, friends, that when you are in circumstances that are good or circumstances that are dire, when you worship, you are swimming with the tide of the universe because the universe was created as an expression of great wonder and joy. Now, in our saner moments, we realize this. Poets have written about it, including the Bible. From the book of Job, I love the way this is expressed. God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Is that the little drummer boy? I don't know what it is either. Yeah. I would like to have been there that morning when the stars sang together. When, see, when I worship God, when I sing his praises, I see things as they really are. I see life as this unbelievable gift and the possibility for amazing joy and trust and faith, whatever my circumstances may be. I have to tell you something this morning, folks. The one alternative to worship, the only alternative to worship, is really despair. Now, I don't want to think about this very much. And I might be able to grub a little money out and make a living or whatever, but the alternative to worship really is despair. This is from an atheist philosopher, a brilliant guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. If you've ever wondered, why is it that atheism or skepticism or you know, agnosticism or physicalism, why does it not result in great music, like more unforgettable songs? Let me tell you why it doesn't. These are the words of Bertrand Russell about his understanding of the meaning of existence. He writes this, he says, Purposeless, more void of meaning is the word, is the world. 
Man's growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, Bertrand, that may be so, but that's hard to sing to a baby. <laughs> How firm a foundation is total despair. You'll be a corpse soon, dear, so what should I care? You're quite dead, dear. You won't make a peep. So shut up your pie hole and let mommy sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's about the best lullaby you can make out of that. Listen, the alternative to that is despair. No music, no wonder. But in worship, I'm reminded of the reality that there is a good God, a great God, and I get to praise Him. And it doesn't become about me and my needs and my taste and my preferences. Worship is how I see how big God is and how good this life is and joy and hope is present. And in worship, I get to see how small I am. Now listen, I know this is not popular in our culture. I know it's not popular to say that people should see how small they are. We live in a culture today where it says that human beings are the measure of all things. And we should make ourselves feel really big. But think about it. If there's not something bigger than me, wow. There's a fascinating TED Talk. I know many of you watch and listen to those. One of them was by a woman named Amy Cuddy. It's a great talk. In fact, it's turned into a book that she's written called Presence. It's been watched by millions and millions of people. And she notes in this talk how we carry ourselves, in other words, our body language and our body uh, posture is really important. She basically says that there are two ways that you can carry your body. So we're just going to kind of audit ourselves right now where you're sitting, okay? You can just kind of test yourself. She says, you can either make yourself big or you can make yourself small. Now, people, some people are doing this right now. It's very interesting. Some of you are sitting up real straight, shoulders up, head high. You're taking up space. Some of you have your arms spread out. It's kind of interesting. There's a Greek word, the word alpha. The Greek alphabet starts with that, and it ends with a word called omega, Alpha dogs do this. They stretch out. Some people call it man-spreading, okay? It's just kind of a sign of a lot of testosterone. It's a sense of dominance. And if you ever watch an athletic competition, you'll notice that most athletes have a reflexive response to winning. They throw up their arms in triumph. They make themselves bigger and more predominant and more noticed, Amy Cuddy, in her research, says that people, even people who are blind from birth, who have never, ever even seen this posture, do it automatically. It's associated with elevated levels of testosterone. But some people, some people, very interesting, on the other hand, 
make themselves very small. You cross your legs. You fold your arms. You hunch your shoulders. You bow your head. This is associated with certain amounts of stress hormone, cortisol. You feel more levels of stress. You don't really want to be noticed. You kind of feel a sense of weakness or inadequacy. And what Cuddy says is that this has an enormous impact on the way you go through life. In fact, she recommends that if you have a healthy conversation, a really important conversation that needs to happen, like a job interview or you're going to ask somebody on a date for the first time, she actually recommends to feel empowered that you go into a room by yourself and you practice power poses for two minutes. This has become the rage kind of in the business world. I want to show you one of these. This is called the Wonder Woman pose. This is a real thing. I'm not making this up. I was going to show the real Wonder Woman, but I knew none of the guys would listen to the rest of the message, so <laughs> I actually picked Amy Cuddy to do this. Now, that doesn't seem like a real alpha kind of leader pose, right? If you haven't seen this talk, it's an interesting thing. A little controversial in some circles, but very powerful personal story behind it for Amy Cuddy. See, the need for people in our culture to have power is a great need. It's not the only need. But it's not just about how big I am. In fact, the Christmas story kind of inverts this. I think it's great. You remember the Magi, when they come to Bethlehem, they're following this, store, uh, this star. It's kind of cool. They're not from Israel. They don't even know the one true God. They're actually practicing astrology. And God uses that to lead them to Bethlehem. Now, these are quite powerful men, if you would think of them kind of as alpha leaders. And when they see the star, they're overjoyed. In fact, one translation, an old translation says, they rejoice with exceeding great joy. And on coming to the house, the place where the child was, they see the child with his mother Mary. And these men who rejoiced with great and exceeding joy, it's very interesting, they don't power up. They don't walk in with their heads high and their shoulders broad. The text says they bow down and they worship him. They make themselves small. When you get a sense of what God is doing, it really doesn't strike you to hit the power pose. You see, it's like Jesus as he lays in the manger. He's laying there, but he's not Alpha God. He humbled himself. He makes himself small. Infinity is cramming itself into a little body, into a humble little manger. And we're told that it's so staggering to these people that they bow down. Now, you don't have to take that posture. There's another part of the Christmas story. There's another guy, and his name is Herod. Herod didn't want to bow down. And believe me, if anybody practiced power poses, it was Herod. His nickname was Herod the Great. Herod wanted to be the only one, the big one. Herod wouldn't come to Jesus. He wouldn't approach Jesus. It's very interesting. In Jerusalem, historically, there is a church associated with the birth of Jesus. Now, nobody knows for sure if that's the exact place, but this tradition goes way back. It's called the Church of the Nativity. Inside of it, there's a little cave down below. In order to get to that spot, there's a door but it's very interesting, that door is very, very low. 
You have to kneel down. And there's something very fitting about this, that in order to get to the place where Jesus was, supposedly, you have to stoop down, kneel down to get in. Herod says, not going to do it. And I'll let you in on a little secret this morning. There's a lot of Herods inside all of us. By way of contrast, there's another character inside this Christmas story, and her name is Mary. And when God comes to her, God says, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you, Mary. <laughs> when she finally gets her mind wrapped around it, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Here's a nutshell. This Christmas, you can magnify yourself, you can magnify your problems, or you can magnify your Savior. And to magnify God is to declare his greatness and to ascribe greatness to his power and his love and his joy. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> Mary does not say when they come to her and say, you will be the mother of this child. She does not say, well, it's about time. Between now and Christmas, over these next few weeks, I want to invite all of us to commit ourselves to worshiping fully. Now, this is a practice that we can cultivate. We can make a decision. Every time you think about Jesus during this holiday season, just magnify Christ in your life. When you see a nativity scene, when you hear a Christmas carol, when you see a Christmas tree or Christmas lights or hear the Christmas story, or you just think about Jesus, decide right then to worship him with your whole self. See, sometimes people think of worship as having this real warm feeling. They think, well, if I don't feel like worshiping, I won't do it right now because then it wouldn't be authentic. Like I'd feel like a hypocrite. Friends, that's not the way devotion works. Devotion is not reliant on feeling. In fact, what do we call husbands who only say I love you to their wives when they feel like it? Ex-husbands. It wasn't a trick question. I told that to somebody this week and they said, jerk. <laughs> I guess that fits too. The reality is we worship God as an action. And that means it's available to us as an act of the will, as a choice. This is why very often in the Bible when you see worship described, the body, the physical body is involved. I'm just going to list a couple of them here. One man by the name of Manoah and his wife, they fell on their faces to the ground. Ever tried worshiping God that way? David danced before the Lord with all his might. You might try that one. Maybe by yourself sometime. The psalmist says, clap your hands, all ye nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Sometimes worship shouts. The scripture says, three times a day, Daniel got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Another man in the New Testament went with the disciples to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God because God had healed him. People used their bodies in the Bible, their wills, their minds, their whole selves. Isn't it cool how God has wired us up to use all of us? There's actually a study now that found that people who are depressed, if you just take a pen, like a writing pen, and you just put it in your mouth, 
and you think about your smile muscles, it actually will make them happier. You can try it right now. Listen, if somebody's crabby next to you, just stick your finger in their mouth and it's going to make them happier. (laughs) Try it at lunch. See if it works. See, what we do with our body actually, actually does, believe it or not, affect the way we feel. William James, a famous psychologist, 100 years ago, he says, I don't sing because I'm happy. He says, I'm happy because I sing. And God says, use your body, your will, your mind. I want us to talk about three postures here, and then we'll close. I want us to practice these three postures and just kind of keep them in the forefront of our minds over these next three or four weeks. The first thing is I want us to practice and worship God with a humble heart. Now, here's a really good posture for this one, okay? And I'm taking a chance here because I'm old now. But there's a really good posture here for this. And that's to be on my knees. You know, it's very interesting. This is the posture that Mary took. This is the posture that a lot of people take in our society when they're going to do something very important. Some of you have seen the video that's kind of going around the Internet about the guy who proposed to his wife this past uh, month. And before he went down on his knees to ask her and give her the ring, he had to take off his Air Jordans because he didn't want to scuff them up. But we get down on our knees and we posture ourselves and we say to God with a humble heart, with a humble heart. See, when I'm on my knees, I can't run anywhere. I don't have any power. It's a way of just saying, God, I'm your servant. I'm your child. You know, we think in our society that esteem will come when we build ourselves up. Well, the angel came. The angel said, greeting Mary's, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And her response was, why me? You know, it's so interesting as a Christian that pride can sneak into our lives in the craziest of ways. Sometimes somebody will ask you or ask me, they'll say, how did you become a Christian? And people will say stuff like, well, I became convinced of this certain idea or I read this particular book or it was a result of this conversation I had or I grew up in a Christian home. Let's be honest this morning. The only real correct answer is, for reasons I will never understand when I was prideful and stubborn and willful and rebellious and deceitful and self-centered and egotistical, God had mercy on me. And he sent his son for me. He showed me how to really live. And nobody is more surprised that I'm a Christian than I am. So for the rest of my life, I'll just live in this sense of kind of this state of gratitude. Sometime in worship over the next few weeks, maybe bow your knee and with a humble heart just say thanks. The second thing is I want us to practice worshiping God with a willing spirit. God loves when we come to him and you can offer God your will anytime. Now a great posture for this is just to put your hands out like this, palms kind of up, and just say, God, I just want to be available. I just want to receive what you have for me. 
There's a great guy named Bob Goff. He's written a book. Some of you have writ, uh, probably read the book called Love Does. Bob is a Christian and an activist, but he's also a practicing attorney. And he said he's learned over the years in his practice that this posture, this with your hands out kind of like this, is so strong that he's actually uh, come to the point where he has all of his clients who are being deposed. They're going through a deposition, which can be very stressful. He says he forces them to sit at the table, and for as long as that deposition is going on, they have to sit there like this. And he's experienced over the years how amazing it is that when people sit there, they don't get stiff. They don't uh, close down. There's a tenderheartedness to them. There's a kind of uh, no stiff neck response. There's no kind of defensive response. They don't get stubborn. In fact, he said he's so committed to this now over the years that if his client for some reason stops doing it, he will kick them underneath the table. And just remind them to put their hands up. You know, it's very interesting. Christmas is a time of giving gifts. But sometimes, friends, you give a gift you need, but you don't really want to think about it because of what it says about you. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine was telling me a few Christmases ago, he received a gift from a family, family member, and when he opened it up, it was a nose hair trimmer. He thought it was kind of a strange gift. But later on that day, he went to his wife's side of the family for Christmas. He got another gift. He was all excited, you know, unwrapping the package and uh, opened it up. And inside of it was another nose hair trim. He got a second nose hair trimmer from a completely different person. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think anyone has ever asked for a nose hair trimmer? Has anybody ever written and said, Dear Santa, Please, more than anything else this year, I want a nose hair trimmer. Why would anyone give anyone a nose hair trimmer for Christmas? Do you know the reason? Because you have nose hair. And my friend didn't want to think about what it really said about him. Do you know what God gives you for Christmas? A Savior. Someone to save you from a life of emptiness and self-destruction. And friends, what does that say about you? It says, Phil needs someone to pull me out of a pit. Phil needs someone to rescue me from darkness and death. Phil needs somebody to save me from my own follies. So I come before God and I say, okay, God, I commit it. <laughs> I admit it. I'm not going to go through life clutching and asking and asking. I'm just going to say, God, I make my life available. There's a great statement on worship in the book of Hebrews. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Listen, this season when you serve, when you share, when you give, when you listen, when you love, that's the worship that delights the heart of God. So the first posture is on our knees and the second posture is with hands outstretched and palms up. And then the last one. We will worship God also in he eager hope. You know, sometimes people think worship is just for when you have good circumstances. It's just for people who are happy. 
It's not for sick people or impoverished people or jobless people or abandoned people. But I want to tell you, whatever the circumstances are in your lives this Christmas, worship is for you to think about the fact that there is a good God and He is a strong God. He's watching over you. And it's in these moments, these dire moments, these circumstances that are not always good that we need God more than ever. I'll tell you about somebody who found out about this. There was an old, old man in the Bible. His name was John. He had been a follower of Jesus. When he was very young, he had great promise. He spent time with Jesus, with his friends. But now he was an old man, and he was isolated. He was all by himself on an island. He was in prison there, and he knew he was going to die in prison. And this is what he writes. He says, I saw a huge crowd. He says, too huge to even count. Everyone was there, all the nations and all the tribes and all the races and all the languages, And they were standing, dressed in white robes and waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb and heartily singing, salvation to our God on his throne, salvation to the Lamb. One of the things that boggles the mind of heaven is that God saves. God not only creates a world that is at the same time wonderful and at the same time lost and horrible at times and broken at times, but that God is going to redeem that same world. That God is going to dry every tear from our eyes. That God is going to end oppression and injustice. Salvation belongs to God. And the question that heaven has is how can we not worship him? So John gets this picture of all of heaven on its feet. Because again, when we worship, we worship with all of our mind and all of our body. I'm going to give you a picture, and it's going to be so woefully inadequate. I'll just tell you ahead of time, it's not going to be that great. It's almost a picture I couldn't even share with you. Because just over a year ago, in 2016, my baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, finally won the World Series. Now, I want to tell you what kind of moment this was, because if you're a Cubs fan, it's not just that you hadn't won a championship in 108 years. Think about that. 108 years had passed. It wasn't just that. It was the fact that many people believed that there was actually a curse on the Cubs, way before any of us were ever born. It wasn't just that the Cubs couldn't win it all or wouldn't win it all, is that they couldn't win it all, and they didn't have a chance to win it all. And I'll tell you, year after year, you just started to believe that the curse was real. They get close a couple of times, and then they lose. And then came 2016, and the Cubs got back to the World Series. It was so exciting. And then they fell behind three games to one. Now, friends, I don't know if you know baseball, but it's hard to come back from 3-1. And everybody thought, oh, here we go again, the curse. And then amazingly, against the Indians, they tied it 3-3, and they went to the seventh and final game. And in that game, they got a huge lead at the beginning of that game. And everybody's like, unbelievable, they're going to win the World Series after 108 years. And then they choked. They blew that lead. It was awful. The game ended up going into extra innings. And in the 10th inning, they scored a run. 
And in the bottom of the 10th, the Cleveland Indians were up. And the first guy came up, and he got an out. And the second guy came up, and he got an out. And then the third guy came up, and he hit a ground ball. And the ground ball went to the Cubs' all-star third baseman, Chris Bryant. And I want you to look. This is an actual picture of Chris Bryant's face as that ball is rolling toward him. Do you see that? Now the question is, why is Chris Bryant smiling? Game is still going on. Ball is still in play. Outcome is still in doubt. Nobody else knows. But here's the thing. Chris Bryant knew. He has this huge smile on his face because he knows that this game is over before anybody else. He knows the curse is broken before anybody else. And the ball came to him, and Chris Bryant fielded it flawlessly, and he threw it perfectly, and then he did what people do when they win. And the whole team, they jumped up, and they started singing and dancing and shouting and leaping and making complete fools of themselves. The whole city of Chicago went crazy. They shut down the city. People called in sick to work. Millions of dollars were lost in revenue. Listen, five million people stood on the streets of Chicago to attend an enormous parade, screaming and hollering, listen, because their team had finally broken the curse. And here's the deal. I know. I get it. We don't do that kind of thing. I mean, we're talking about a World Series win here. We're not talking about that. I mean, we don't jump to our feet and we don't wave our hands and we don't put our hands up in the air. We don't applaud like crazy. I get it. But since, as a matter of fact, the God of all creation and the person of Jesus has come down to earth and was born in this manger and announced the arrival of God's kingdom and laid down his life and was raised from the tomb and our sins are forgiven and our guilt is wiped out and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we get the church as a family and God is our Father and Jesus is our Savior and heaven is our eternal home. Every once in a while, we ought to just go like this. <laughs> we just ought to go like this. You know why? Because he knows how the story's going to end. And I'll tell you this, the curse is broken.